Welcome to Bipolar Inquiry, drafting and crafting bipolar consciousness since 2016 by philosophizing, relanguaging, and harvesting mania's special messages, meaning visions, extraordinary experiences, ideas, insights, superpowers, possibilities, synchronicity, and parallel worlds. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information discussed on the show is not medical advice. Now, let's get started with this episode. Yesterday, I did some more of the Muse meditations. I did a couple of them, and I did it later at night. So I noticed that I was able to stay in the neutral or calm space for most of the time. I only spent three seconds in an active brain state. They have three categories, active, neutral, and calm. And I was neutral or calm for about half the time. So this app is showing that my brain is actually quite calm and I'll show those results. I earned, I think I earned 13 birds. I can't remember. I'm not looking at the picture right now, but I will show the picture and I got more calm points than usual. And then after I did it that first time, I tried it again because I wanted to see what would happen if I was looking at my computer and typing on my computer when I first started, just for comparison. So I did that and I noticed that the app was giving me really stormy weather sounds, so I knew that my brain was likely active. So I didn't want to waste the whole session, so then I just sat in the calm space and noticed that my brain went into the calm. So I will show that just to compare that, yeah, if my eyes are open and I'm looking at the computer, my brain is active, but if I close my eyes and I'm calm, then my brain calms down. And then for the next challenge, they want me to do a seven minute meditation. So I will do that tonight. It's getting late, so it's quieter. That's a better time to do it because otherwise any little noise could potentially distract my brain. And then I was looking at the Muse Monitor app and then I noticed for the first time that I could actually take a landscape screenshot of the data that it was showing me. And so when I did that, I actually noticed there was another line. So in the vertical screenshot, it just shows 40 hertz and 56 hertz. So I remember when I showed that once, I guesstimated one of my little amplitude bars in gamma at about 53 hertz. But when I actually took the landscape screenshot, I noticed that that bar that I was wondering about was about two-thirds the way between 48 and 56 
which means that that band actually was 54 hertz. It wasn't 53 hertz. And so I googled 54 hertz and I came across this YouTube video and it's called 54 Hertz Ascension Frequency Binaural Beats Synchronicity with Sacred Geometry Quantum String 432 Hertz. And it shows a little calculation underneath the video. It shows 432 Hertz divided by 8 octaves. And it says 54 Hertz being the fundamental frequency of the quantum string in this primordial binaural beats sound template. And then it gives a bunch of other information. So it's calling 54 hertz the fundamental frequency and something about an ascension frequency. So I thought that was interesting because that's the frequency band that shows up in my brain thing. And it might turn out to be nothing. I still haven't gotten a look at anyone else's brain with this Muse thing yet. but. Another thing I found really, really interesting about this 54 hertz ascension frequency is that when I pressed play on it, I was listening to the sound. And when I pressed play, this sound that I always hear disappeared. And I might have mentioned the sound that I hear when I was in California because it was really there. It's like this and I found that when I press play on this 54 hertz it disappears because the sound of it coming out of my computer turns off the sound seemingly coming out of my brain or just feeling like it's ever-present, omnipresent everywhere. So as soon as I press play I can't hear the sound that I always hear but I hear the sound coming out of my computer. I almost feel like 54 hertz is the sound of my brain because I hear this sound all the time and it's only when I press play on this that it disappears because the sound coming out of my computer almost takes precedence over my brain creating that sound or it's like I hear that sound everywhere but if my ears are hearing the sound from a 54 hertz source which would be pretty rare it's not like I'm going to hear that anywhere then it stops. So it's interesting that there's this 54 hertz band on my brainwave picture thingy and then I found this 54 hertz thing that makes this sound that's always been going on in my brain disappear. And when I was living in that busy city before I left for California, I could hear this sound and I actually thought it was the cars going by. But then when I got to California and I could still hear it and it's very quiet there, I realized that maybe my brain is making this sound. And I didn't quite think of it that way. I thought maybe it was a generator somewhere making the sound. But then now listening to this and how it turns off that sound is really bizarre. So maybe I'll play a little bit of it with no copyright infringement intended. It's called 54 Hertz Ascension Frequency Binaural Beats Synchronicity with Sacred Geometry Quantum String 432 Hertz.
So it's really weird because as soon as I turn this off again, it's replaced by the sound that I was here. And it doesn't sound exactly like that, but in acoustics, if you have one sound playing and then you put in another sound in the song in the same range, they're gonna cancel each other out. So it feels like the sound of this is canceling out the sound of my brain, which corresponds to that 54 hertz thing. And here it says it's something like an ascension frequency. So maybe I'm connected to an ascension frequency. I don't know. My brain sounds kind of like this, but a way slower vibration. It's just really strange because pressing the play button on this literally feels like it presses pause on the brain sound that my brain is making. And imagine judging somebody based on if they have a calm brain. Imagine being able to look at one's ability to meditate and if one only has this hyperactive brain and they can't go into a meditative state feeling like, ooh, I don't know if I want to talk to that person. Because right now, a lot of times we judge people if they have a so-called mental illness label, but we don't really know what is happening inside anyone's brain. But if we were one day hooked up to some kind of brain sensors, then anyone could know what's going on in our brain in a way. And the universe has already tapped into that information. And there's probably some kind of epigesturetic nature of the brainwaves. The gestures of the brainwaves. But who knows? So I just want to point out that even though I have a label of a mental illness, my brain is able to go into this neutral and calm state quite easily. Imagine if I were to only talk to people that had gamma waves in their brain. I still have to do more experiments to see if that's a useful measure, but we'll see. And I wonder if the high gamma waves or even those waves of mania can be passed on to others. If there's some kind of entrainment with these more powerful brain frequencies. I was thinking about trying to get organized, but it seems impossible. My days are even more random right now, and I'm finding it hard to keep up with what I wanted to do, like type out my insights. So I haven't been doing that. Today I actually discovered something called Dropbox Paper, and it's kind of a cool app for editing and collaborating. So I might try to incorporate that in some way. I was thinking of actually putting my videos in that and then sharing and then creating a collaboration around each video. I don't really know if that's worth it, but it was fun to at least play with for a little bit. And I don't know what else I discovered. I bought some sunglasses. I never wear sunglasses because I've read that one gets a better tan without them because the sensors for how much light we're being exposed to are around our eyes but at the same time I feel like just being in California and now being back in summer back home I've been in this really prolonged summer and it's giving me this infinite squint which is creating this frowny line here 
And in light of what I read in that book, Stealing Fire, about how having a frown can actually make one feel down, I don't want to epigesturetically squint myself into a lower mood than I need to be in because I'm squinting from the sun. So I might wear the sunglasses sometimes. I'll show them to you. Whatever. And I came across a tweet by Natasha Tracy and it's almost like she heard me talking about her because her tweet was related to her article that she wrote actually before I was talking about her, but I didn't see the tweet until after I talked about her. And she was talking about how saying to someone with bipolar disorder, oh, others are worse off than you are, isn't very nice. It doesn't really make someone feel better. And I was actually saying I feel bad because she's so much worse off than I am. So it is kind of true that there are people that are worse off. And I was saying that it seems like she's a lot worse off and I feel bad for her. I don't, I can't actually imagine that people would be that much worse off than she is. It sounds like she has a pretty difficult situation. I would hope that nobody's worse off than she is. Oh, and I was going to say about getting organized. I created a new word called explorganized because I don't know if I can ever get organized in the true sense that we might feel that word relates to but I can just keep exploring and organizing as I go and some things that I explore might just naturally fall away and there's nothing I can do about that I wonder if I'll ever get back to insights so not exploring based on one's planning and organization, but just exploring and letting the organization fall into place. And today I did spend some time brainstorming business names, and the one I like the most is Pure Potential Wellness, but it's already taken, maybe in New Zealand, maybe it's okay here, but maybe not. So I'll just have to keep thinking and eventually figure something out with that. So I'm going to check out my screenshots to see if there's anything I missed. And then I'm going to do my 7 minute meditation and we'll see if there's anything else I want to talk about today. There's this website called Ketamine Advocacy Network and I opened it up and they have this little ticker here that counts the impacts of depression, bipolar, and PTSD since opening this page. So I just opened the page about 25 seconds ago and it's showing there were two suicides and farm sales at 50,000, economic losses of 1.6 million and that's pretty impactful and I was coming on this website to find that little snippet that I read when I was on this website a little while ago saying that ketamine causes a brief dissociation feeling that can be 
a bit scary, but it was actually part of the process and part of the healing process of having this particular form of ketamine therapy. And I'm not promoting this or anything. I just thought it was interesting because in my experiences of so-called psychosis, I've had dissociation events each time. And I feel like it's a healing process. And part of the healing process is to really dissociate from everything and just feel lost and feel scared and alone and, and sort of starting from scratch again. It's not a pleasant feeling, but I just felt like it was interesting that there's this therapy through ketamine that will do the same thing, but it's part of the mechanism. It's not seen as, oh, well, if you do this therapy and you dissociate, that's a bad thing. So again, the universe has the same process that it induces in me without taking anything like ketamine. There's always an analogous process in the natural physiology and biology of the human body. Many of us have heard of the 30-day challenge. I realized the self-dialogue is kind of like a 365-day challenge. And I wonder how many people have done a 365-day challenge, documented the whole thing, barely told anyone, and then just share it all after the fact. Maybe that's kind of what research is all about, sharing when one has some sort of significant results in. And I've kept it to myself just to have it as a process for myself without being influenced by others. And I wonder what it would have been like had I told people every step of the way what I was going to do. I probably would have had people giving their opinions and judgments about things. Right now it's not really safe to be out as somebody with a label of a serious and persistent mental illness and not taking conventional medical treatment. There's a lot of stigma on that. They talk all about the stigma about mental illness, but they don't talk about the stigma for people who choose to self-direct and explore other options besides what is out there as most prevalent as in the psychopharmacology. And I made a note to myself not to extrapolate too much to convince because I've already convinced myself of that which I wanted to convince myself of in terms of talking myself out of the paradigm of psychopharmacology. So anything else I say is just for fun, really. And I guess this is where to talk or not to talk becomes the question. Do I need to keep talking about that kind of stuff? I'm not sure. I sure wrote a lot more on the subject, so I could talk about it if it's of interest to my brain. And I think I was writing that down also regarding the book Stealing Fire. It's so interesting, I could extrapolate the whole thing and put it in terms of my context, but I have to choose how to spend my time. If I spend the next year extrapolating, I don't know if that's the best way to spend my time when I could create a business or something like that. Maybe I could pretend that I'm going to remember to do five minutes of extrapolating a day, just minimal, and the rest 
whatever daily things I come across as well as the research regarding the Muse headband. And I actually talked to the Muse people today and they're releasing a cool dashboard product where people can keep track of other sessions if they're a life coach or something. So I'll probably design that into the plan. Here's something I wrote. The outer world is a result of our inner pharmacy. Our inner pharmacy is failing as it's a biocorrelate of our egos. Then they sell us drugs. We should be able to access these states on demand in the moment. The new idea has to resonate with a critical mass of people. Show it's not a mental illness, but another world trying to be birthed out of us. And the important part of that was how whatever our inner pharmacy, our natural pharmacy is making is how we're going to experience the world. And most of us are dopamine dominant pleasure seekers. And we seek pleasure at the expense of others. And we're not oxytocin dominant. And I did talk a lot about that a certain, at a certain point. And I also thought of a concept called the inner butterfly effect. Meaning when someone does a drug somewhere to get high, someone somewhere else kills themselves. So when we seek these inner pleasure states by just taking drugs indiscriminately, it affects the whole collective consciousness because we're altering the inner space unintelligently. And it's one consciousness. So if we're if we're creating an inner butterfly effect of unintelligence, that's going to affect the whole. So when somebody indiscriminately exercises this pleasure reflex through drugs, someone else jumps off a bridge somewhere else. Because that person who is just getting high could actually be reaching out a helping hand to the other, or vice versa. And I don't remember if I talked about this from Stealing Fire. It was on embodied cognition research and how it's best when we train our brains and our bodies together. And I feel like this is what mania does, but in real life, our bodies and brains are moving together for once. It's not like we're thinking about something over there and doing something here. We're really immersed in what we're doing. And our thoughts sometimes do seem to wander, but not really. They're just extrapolating to infinity from the moment. So it gets our brains and bodies working together, training together, because our whole life we've spent thinking about yesterday well on autopilot in the present moment. We don't know how to operate with both working together at the same time. And when that happens, we feel like we're not in control because we feel like we're in control when we're thinking about the past or the future and then our body's just going on on automatic pilot. Really, we're not in control at all. So non-control feels like we have our hand on the steering wheel when we don't. As Krishnamurti would say, it's unpremeditated art. Note to self, not having any new insights. Slowly catch up. Don't waste the summer. So I did my three meditations with Muse. I did a longer one using a different background sound. I used the rainforest. And I thought I didn't do as well as when I used the beach sound. 
But then I tried another setting, which was the desert sound. And I did even worse. I was barely in the calm at all. And then I switched to this ambient sound mode. And I only did slightly better than the desert. So it seems like the beach setting is the best for me. The rainforest seemed a little bit distracting because the rain feels distracting to me. So I will go back to the beach starting tomorrow. My favorite place. I love this trail. And this morning, I finally got to see what someone else's brain looks like with the Muse app and the Muse Monitor app. And I took a couple screenshots with the Muse Monitor and turns out it doesn't look much different than mine. There's that same 54 hertz band and the same band in the orange range as well as in the green beta range. So. So all that stuff I said about powerful ascension frequencies isn't necessarily valid. Unless, of course, my brain's so powerful it's entraining those brains around me. Ha! Huh. But it was an interesting way to think about it for a day or two or a few minutes. And that's usually what my dialogue with myself is all about. Just interesting ways to think about it, about something for a very short period of time as opposed to a way that our brain often operates is to have a few ideas ruminating all the time. Another way is to have so many thoughts and ideas and things to wonder about and ways of looking at things and perspectives and ways to think about things that they just don't take hold for very long to the point where I don't even really know what I was talking about a couple minutes ago a lot of the times. But having this repetitious structure of very few ideas about myself has made way for not very much repetition at all and having so many ideas because it seems like having few ideas on repeat creates this epiphenomenon of an illusion of self. But when that isn't happening, there's not a few ideas repeating, relatively few, you know, 70,000 thoughts a day, of which however many are very repetitious, creating this feeling of having a self, thinking those thoughts. But when there's no repetition, really, there's little memory, then there isn't so much of a feeling of a self. And it's the non-self perspective that leads to having lots of different thoughts and ideas. So, I just made that up now. And seems reasonable, but like everything else, I'll forget about it and move on to something else. And it's not necessarily relevant the next moment. And I'm not trying to make it relevant or remember it to be relevant. So this is just really showing what a different brain neurotribe is like. Having lots of ideas and thoughts and insights, none of which are any more important than anything else. And that's another quality or problem of the self is that 
we think that our ideas are important to us. And that almost creates the phenomenon of the me in that if I have these ideas that I think are important to me, that creating the importance creates a me structure because if none of them were really important, they would just be passing through and just made note of as possibly interesting, but not to be clung onto or believed. So making certain ones important, whether it's having a muse headband and feeling like there could be some kind of ascension frequency for a couple of hours or just walking in a park, none is more important than anything else really. And then this morning I went and I picked blackberries. Turns out they're just on the other side of the fence from where I'm living now. So I had a lot of blackberries for lunch and they're fresh right off the vine. That is so healthful, which is great. And this morning I woke up kind of late. I'm back to sleeping a little bit longer again. It seems like when I sleep longer I have less insights. And that's okay because I need to catch up anyways. But I went to bed around 11, maybe 11.30 and I woke up at 9.30. So I'm back to about 10 hours. But it's good to just sleep and it feels good. And I'm staying up a little later to have a little quiet time to myself at night. And like I showed at the end of the last video, I tried some of the other soundscapes on Muse. And this morning I had a smoothie with coconut milk and blueberries and spinach, as well as nopal, which is something from a cactus, and flaxseed meal, and a little bit of moringa powder. And I also bought some spirulina yesterday because on that optimal wellness test I did back earlier this year, it says that spirulina is really good for helping the body deal with radiation exposure from EMFs and stuff. And I do have some of those exposures that showed up. So it's also good for other things. It was one of the things from that report that I thought that I may as well adopt. And then another one I got, I got some turmeric powder. I didn't put that in my smoothie, that would be weird. But I had a bit of that with some coconut milk and some black pepper. Apparently that's a really good way to take turmeric. And I had a spoon of coconut oil. So I'm getting back onto some of these healthy type things. And I'm on my walk. And yesterday I was short on steps, so I just bounced on my trampoline for 15 minutes, which gets me about 2,000 steps. So that's a way I can top up my steps if I don't get enough in a day. And the other thing I found out by allowing someone else to try the headband and the Muse app with the meditation was that this other person who isn't really an experienced meditator at all was able to stay a lot more calm than I do. They only had two recoveries and they only spent three seconds in the active and it seemed like their graph was more in the neutral and calm area than mine. So that is a bit interesting because maybe my brain is just really active even when it's calm. I don't know what that all means. I'd have to do a few more comparisons, maybe a lot more, but it's interesting.
So coolest thing ever happened. I finished my first lap in this park and I was planning on doing another one, but I decided that I should go pee. So I walked out of the way to go use the restroom. And when I was walking towards the restroom, I saw something fly in front of me and I was like, what was that? And then I looked and it was an owl. It was the biggest, coolest owl I've ever seen in nature. And even in California, I saw a couple of owls at night because they were in somebody's yard because they had owl boxes. And I saw an owl once at the top of a tree in the dark. I could only see its shadow. But this was an owl in broad daylight right near where I'm staying now, back home. So I'm really glad that I decided to use the restroom because I saw the owl. So I'm really glad that I decided to use the restroom because I got to see the really cool owl. And I'll put some footage in.
I've been attempting to brainstorm some business names. I came up with Pure Mountain Wellness and wrote down, as you build your mountain of wellness, may you be able to move away from the memes of mental health. I'm not sure about that one. And then my brain started going on to a different theme, a theme of creativity and how that is one of the qualities we get in touch with in so-called bipolar. And so I wrote down humanic creativity and wellness because I like the word humanic because it's a combination of human and manic. And I probably won't use the word manic in the name, even though I'm tempted to. I don't think manic is a bad word or a bad thing, though it does get us in trouble for sure. I don't know where to start. I haven't really felt very insightful lately, but the last two days I have written down some insights related to creativity and a few things that I've read. And I wrote down again that it's important for me to shower in the morning, and I have been every day actually, so that's not something I'm writing down to remind myself, but just reminding myself that getting ready for the day right away is important. Getting up, I do some stretches in bed, and then lately I've been jumping on my trampoline for 10 minutes or so. This morning I did probably half an hour because I was actually listening to one of the audios I created in November of last year because when I picked up my phone in the morning, that was on the screen because I did make a playlist of some of them using iTunes Match. So the audios aren't on my phone, but I can access them through iTunes Match. And so that was there, so I just sort of decided to listen to it. And I was talking about when I went to the Hearing Voices group and they had those people there who went to the Hearing Voices conference and talked about that. So interesting enough, I guess. But point being, I get up, do my stretches, jump on the trampoline, have a shower, and then eat some really healthy food. At least I have been since I've been back home. I make a smoothie with a bunch of good stuff in it, have a spoon of coconut oil. And so I've at least gotten some health in my body and I've gotten my lymphatic system moving and done a bunch of healthy stuff. So the rest of the day, not that it doesn't matter, but at least I'm off to a good start because I feel like there can be a tendency to move towards not taking care of the body as well. So taking care of the body is really important. And my days, I haven't been able to really spend time with myself, talking to myself very much. I have a few minutes here, so I'm going to talk to myself right now. Because there's usually people around and stuff going on. So I'm going to try to figure out a way to talk to myself more because I'm feeling impelled to do so again because I've had some insights lately and I was writing stuff around how the creativity that we come upon in so-called mania is one of the largest untapped resources in the world and it would be interesting to create some kind of structure around that because we do tap into creativity for sure even science is studying what's up with this whole bipolar creativity thing and 
why not do something with it ourselves instead of just waiting for clinicians to tell us they're going to help us in a person-centered way with our creativity. We don't necessarily need help with our creativity. I came across a course by Stephen Kotler in my email, and it's a course through creativelive.com with Stephen Kotler. And I was tempted to buy it. It's 129 US and just see what it's all about. But it's really about how to get into creative states and creative flow. And I don't necessarily have a problem with that. It's more what to do with all of it or how to channel it or what to put it into because there's so much of it, not trying to get into it. So I'm not sure if I'll buy that course or not, but it was interesting because I feel like people like me need to figure out ways to channel the overflow of creativity, not just get into flow. Because we get into these overflow states that eventually sort of blow out our entire nervous system and then the ego recalcifies and contains us and then it seems like we have this strange disorder of ups and downs when really to me it's more of an expansion of creativity and an expansion of perception which increases our possibilities and and our potential in our epigestoretic matrix so then we're acting differently in quotes but really we're acting creatively we're not acting according to our calcified ego structure so that expansion comes in and and suspends the ego and, and puts cracks in it so we can access other ways of being. And then eventually, like the tide, the ego sort of comes back in and and puts a cage on us again. And I'm not saying that in terms of good and bad, but it's more how to move with that instead of we don't necessarily have the brain that we can consciously sit down and try and do these things to get into flow states. We just go into this massive overflow. So how do we utilize that or what do we do with that? And that's why I created Harvest Practice Embody for myself. And so when I flow, I overflow. And then after the overflow, I might look back and try and find out what I could harvest from that and what I might practice in daily life and what I might move to embody. And one of the things that I embody is just talking to myself about all of this because that's sort of part of the harvest practice embody. And I'm finding that it's difficult to do much else. And maybe that's all I'm supposed to do. I don't I don't really know. Because there's so much that I want to talk about with myself that I end up just talking about stuff with myself, editing it. And then, you know, of course I do other stuff in my day, but it doesn't leave as much time and room for, I don't know what, I'm not really sure what. Maybe that's part of what I need to realize is that there's not supposed to be something else per se. Because even this Muse headband thing, I was all excited about it. And now I'm just kind of like, yeah. So what, I earned some birds. Kind of understand how to meditate to some extent and I'll still use it and it could be helpful to see if I can get into even more calm spaces for sure but using with other people and stuff that's where I get a little bit like I don't know what to do 
I really don't know what to do, so I just talk to myself. So I was thinking of doing a collective harvest, having people get together to harvest their insights together, and then maybe the collective practice being what ideas do we want to put into play together instead of being, well, I'm going to do this little thing in my life. A lot of the ideas and visions are too big to carry out by oneself. And I have a lot of ideas and visions, but there's no way I can carry them all out by myself. So I find all I can really do is talk about my ideas and visions. And I think that's part of what happens in this map consciousness as we go into this place of big ideas and visions and then we come back to some semblance of ego functioning yet we don't know how to carry these things out and it's not just that we don't know how is we don't have the manpower we can't do it by ourselves so i think having a collective harvest where we share insights and ideas together might pave the way for something i really don't know what so it'd be cool to make up some languaging around this that is fun, around harvesting mania collectively together. And I feel like we would find that there is some kind of commonality, there's some kind of resonance of a world that is arising from within us, and we're talking about it as if it's real or possible, but it seems like hallucination or delusion to others because it's not really yet made manifest. But if we were to get together, then the possibility of some of that being made manifest is more possible, more probable. But if we don't, it'll just be us talking to ourselves like I am right now about possibilities. And I've been all over the map with what I've been writing about, and I haven't been writing about much, but it's all over the place and there's no way I can organize it, even though I've tried once. I just will keep talking as it's sort of written in my book and keep going all over the map because that's what I do. So I don't want to keep saying I wrote and I blah blah blah. Maybe I'll just say it and skip that part. I've been saying that for over a year so maybe it's time to just say stuff even though it might sound like I'm giving directions of some kind. I'm not. I'm just talking to myself. Don't make the mistake of the ego re-coalescing as the body needing to end. So I realized that the ego re-coalescing or descrambling is actually the death of creativity. So in so-called mania, it is a very creative state. And then when that creative state is ending, it feels like death. And what that is, is the ego re-coalescing. So the ego dying is actually the creative state of that energy of creativity coming in and it feels like death when actually the creativity is dying. I don't know if that makes sense. And the ego is retaking command. It's taking the driver's seat again and it feels awful. And I was thinking of some new words for harvest practice and body so harvest, I also thought of extract or extrapolate, or you could expand that to extract and extrapolate, and then practice as exercise. So these are all E words, and embody, 
that's just in body. So exercise is what can be practiced in daily life. So we might have a lot of different visions and ideas, but what can be practiced in daily life? And that's why I like this self-dialogue is because it's sort of a combination of all the three in a way. It's really embodying this map consciousness or trans consciousness or omnipolar consciousness that just wants to talk and talk about ideas and visions and insights. And what can I do in daily life from the harvest that the universe is asking of me? And I feel for me that is talk to myself about insights that I do harvest. And hopefully one day that will be talking to other people and actually doing some kind of action, whatever that may be, I'm not sure. And that leads me to the next principle. I can't do all this alone. Ooh, a big yellow helicopter. Goals are anti-expansion. So goals are something that the ego creates to go along a little path towards the goal. But expansion is in all directions. Creativity is in all directions. So creating goals is anti-expansion. And so I think just saying that now, I would add to my little harvest practice and body, which is exercise, extrapolate, or sorry, extract, extrapolate, exercise, and then embody, it would be it would be expand first. So first there's the expansion, which is the creativity. And then afterwards, um, one can extract, extrapolate, exercise and embody. I need to add one more to the beginning of the equation. Energy is part of the expansion. I did add expand on this next part here. Expand, but I wrote it up here just now. Not that all these little finicky things are important. They're not. Nothing really is. And then maybe I could add effortless effort. So yeah, we don't need to be taught creativity, but we might need to understand how to channel it. And this is one way that I channel it, and it's been really helpful over the last year, I think. So it's important to know how to channel it, because right now, often it gets channeled into ego expansion. So when we expand, when we're in that creative energy, a lot of the energy gets diverted into expanding the ego self, and that can lead to things like I am God and things like that because we feel that creative and powerful. But if that energy just stays in the creative space without adding to the ego structure, then what happens? It could be something different. Perhaps we can expand love and not the ego. Because often a lot of the creative energy is diverted into the structures that are already really conditioned in our brain, like the ego and like self-protection, which is the ego. And projection, too. So mania is the energy of creativity, 
which negates the self because the self or ego is not creative. It's old. It's based on memory. It is conditioned. It's a pattern. So many equals no self equals creativity. And in its wake, that energy destroys the ego because the ego is anti-creativity, really. So it prevents our sense of who we are or what we are from expanding. It keeps it contracted and then it keeps our our behaviors and our patterns and our gestures in that limited framework. So the ego is a contraction. So this movement of this energy is really an expansion and a contraction of what we take to be self or what we identify with. So we identify with a lot more when that energy of mania or creativity comes in. And the expansion process feels really, really good. And the contraction process feels really, really bad. It feels awful. And since our ego is conditioned with good and bad according to the self, when that expansion happens, we feel, oh, our self feels good. And then when the contraction, it's, oh, the self feels bad. So when the self feels bad, it starts projecting all these bad images and thoughts and memes. And when it feels good, it's projecting all these good ones. So really good is expansion and bad is contraction. But can we remove the good and bad from that and just feel it as expansion and contraction? Like breathing. We wouldn't say the in-breath is more important than the out-breath or vice versa. It's just part of the process. So this energy is a different biorhythm. It's a different breath of life. But we're used to just having this consistent ego structure. We're not used to having this breath of self or self-expansion and self-contraction. And even the expansion and contraction of the lungs the lungs don't expand just to expand. They actually expand to bring in nutrients and oxygen. So mania is like a, an in-breath where we're breathing in all this energy of creativity and it's bringing in all this nutrition. And then that contraction where the ego re-coalesces, maybe in something like a so-called psychosis or depression, is just the out-breath. It's like... It's like breathing out the carbon dioxide but part of the trouble is that there's a hanging on in that expansion we feel so amazing that we try to hang on to it and it's like holding our breath if we hold our breath too long then the carbon dioxide builds up in our body and basically that's what makes us breathe out eventually we can't hold our breath indefinitely and if something happens that that happens then we die so really, the out-breath of psychosis is just a breath out, and perhaps because we're holding on to something, the self is trying to hold on to the good of mania and not realizing it's an expansion. And here comes the contraction. It has to contract. So seeing it in terms of expansion and contraction might be a little bit helpful because Good and bad is part of the ego structure. So anything that we can negate that is part of that 
self-structure is going to help because it's actually the self that gets in the way of this natural expansion and contraction. The self is that which prevents the expansion and contraction from happening naturally. And so when that prevention of the contraction and expansion breaks, when the ego breaks, there's, there's a huge expansion and contraction at first, at least, until it starts to level out over time. So even though they say in mental health that each episode, as it's called, leads to further dysfunction and, and deficits, I don't actually feel that's true unless it's intervened with in the way that it is. If it's learned from, then that's not necessarily true. It can actually be learning, so then each time it's actually less. But when it's not taken as a learning, if there's no harvest practice in body, if there's just a medicate and medicate more and fear more and and retract more in terms of the gestures of life, then it's going to cause the brain to shrivel up more. And then because we're not out in the field of life and moving in these ways, when the energy comes in to move us in other ways, it's going to feel a lot more disorienting if than if we're already out there moving in a lot of those ways. So if I stay in my room all the time and then this energy comes in and I want to go out and frolic and do all these things, that's going to be a really big difference and it's not something that I have all the brain cells from because my brain has shrunk from just staying in a room. So then when the energy of expansion ends and I'm no longer able to frolic, it's going to feel even more scary to retract and retreat into the life of just staying in the room again. So it's sort of in a way like exposure therapy. One could think of harvest practice and body kind of like exposure therapy. So if I experienced this extreme energy of so-called mania, and it was really amazing, and then that goes away, and then I just sit in my room, I'm not exposing myself. So one usually thinks of exposure therapy in terms of something scary or traumatic. So say I'm afraid of climbing a mountain. I'm afraid of heights. I'm afraid of that. So then I might climb the stairs and then climb up a building and then climb a mountain eventually. It's the same way this harvest practice in body is a different type of exposure therapy. It's like I expanded so high, so now I have to expose myself to those types of expansions in micro doses. So then when that expansion happens again, it doesn't actually feel so scary or there's not such a big contraction. So that would be like if I climb a mountain, but then I never climb back down the mountain, coming back is going to be scary. But if I go up a small mountain, then I climb back down, and I go up a small mountain, then I climb back down. I'm going to be just as good at climbing the mountain as coming back down. But if I climb a mountain and then always take a gondola down, and then I decide to go to a mountain that doesn't have a gondola, I'm not going to be able to climb back down. So this is the expansion of that energy and then the contraction. We need to be able to practice all those behaviors that would lead us to climb a mountain and climb back down in that extreme energy without being afraid and do it great on the first try. And then when the energy goes away, we can't do it and we don't understand how we even did that. But it gave us a blueprint that it's possible. So doing some of this 
positive type exposure therapy, and not therapy, I don't like that word, but just exposing oneself to the gestures and the ways of being that we experience when we had access to that expanded energy. And we are that expanded energy more than we are this limited self. But the limited self is generally going to recoalesce at some point. But if we practice being in those ways, maybe it will have less reasons to recoalesce. To go along with what I was just saying, me talking to myself in self-dialogue is a type of exposure therapy. Because I usually only had access to these words like this when that energy of so-called mania would come in. But now I can do this pretty much any time. I don't have insights all the time, but more often I have access to them than not. Instead of them coming in a huge burst over a one-month period and then burning out my nervous system, they'll come in burst throughout the day and then maybe for a week I won't have access to them. And it's just a different pattern because I feel like I've created the neurophysiology and neurobiology and everything to be able to handle them. And I can see things in daily life instead of just when in those states. So I feel like that state of mania has become a trait. And so just like if we take some kind of substance to get a state of awe and wonder, it's going to feel really good because from what I said to myself in the last video that I just made up while I was saying it, this good is actually really expansion. So because if we take something like that, and I'm not advocating for that, I don't do that myself. My brain expands when it wants without any extra help. So, but if we do take something, then we feel great and one, and really that is the expansion, but it feels good. But now if one can expand in micro amounts every day, there's no real need for this big expansion that's felt as good. There's just this natural harmony, happiness in a way of these micro expansions instead of trying to do something in particular to get this big expansion. And that's what the first experience of map consciousness usually is. It's a huge expansion. And we can go our whole life trying to chase these huge expansions or we can embody them in daily life so we don't actually need huge expansions to feel good. Instead of like a big expansion to feel good, there's just always a little expansion. So there's just this nice little burst of, of happy energy in a way or joyful energy. And... We could actually, it could be related to something like diabetes in a way, and not in the classic way that we're told in terms of mental illness, like take your medications like they do in diabetes, but by in diabetes, by eating too much sugar, 
this is an oversimplification, eventually the body becomes insulin resistant and we have to, and then someone might eventually have to take exogenous insulin from the outside in order to allow the body to utilize insulin. So what I'm saying is in the brain, we are bombarded all the time with the molecules of pleasure like good all the time, good, 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 that we become so resistant to it. We're so focused on good, getting something the outside, getting something from the outside to feel good, that we're not actually expanding. We're just taking something to feel good, which is a fake expansion. It's not really expanding. So our body has become resistant to this good. I don't know exactly what I'm trying to get at here because I'm just making it up now, but it seems like this expansion that happens is like it seems like this expansion that happens expands beyond this reflex loop that we're in of just taking little things to always have this hit of pleasure but not really expanding our sense of self we're just expanding our pleasure but we're becoming adapted to it and this might be called the hedonic adaptation like Jason Silva talks about be because we can always become adapted to pleasure but I don't know if we can be adapted to expansion because pleasure is just something like good. It's very simple. But expansion is rich. It's not just good. But when we first expand in something like mania, if we just think, oh, this is good, it's not just something that's good. Anyone that's experienced it isn't just thinking, this is good, this is pleasure. It's way beyond that. And I feel like it's trying to push away the pleasure because... It does feel pleasurable, but we're so tied into pleasure right now. But if we see it as something that's just about pleasure, we're missing the point. It's not about personal pleasure at all. And that's actually one of the downfalls is that we think it's about our personal pleasure when it's not. It's about expanding the sense of what and who we are. And when we do that... We see that we're all one, interconnected, interrelated, and when we feel that, we feel empathetic, we feel altruistic, we behave in different ways, we don't behave in self-serving ways, because there is no self to serve. The self that we serve is getting pleasure, so pleasure is the self in a way, it's part of the self. So part of this, when this, so part of the trick of when this creative energy comes in is that it's so pleasurable that we think it's something for ourselves, And when we think that, it expands the self. And when it expands the self, we start thinking that the self is so great and we're Jesus or God or something. And then that's part of what collapses it again. Because if the creative energy is expanding like this, but we're expanding our ego at the same rate, then the cage can just capture that energy again. But if the energy expands and then the ego isn't expanded, it can really break it up. It can destroy the ego as opposed to 
just temporarily suspending it. So if one takes a drug to dissolve the ego, it's only temporary because the ego eventually recoalesces. But a lot of times that changes a person's life and then they act in different ways and then the ego structure isn't as solid. But the trouble with how it's all interpreted right now in terms of so-called mental illness, the problem is attributed to the self, meaning we need to get the self back, we need to get it functional, we need to get it working. So it's a problem of there's something wrong with that person, their self. But it's not seen as the problem is the self itself. And that is more of the problem than anybody's personal self. And I also had an insight about how the body isn't going to give us happy thoughts if we're not taking care of it. So I feel like some of what puts energy into scary thoughts later in the process of map consciousness is that a lot of times we start neglecting the body. And so some of those scary thoughts and things could just be the body saying, hello, you need to stop this moving around in meaning and action and potential and possibilities and perception and actually see that there's still a body that this is all connected to. And unless you want to go off into some amorphous light body form, you better start taking care of the body. So the fear starts coming in and then the fear starts to allow the ego to recoalesce because fear is anti-creativity, which is fear is part of the ego. So that's why I feel it's important to start the day right as someone with this type of consciousness because later on in the day we can get lost in other things. And if we've at least gotten up and done all those things first, then even if we're not paying as much attention to our body or eating as healthy or eating at all the rest of the day, at least we've done some gestures towards acknowledging that the body's there and that it needs to be taken care of for sure. And I realized that a theme that I've been talking about along the way is being a little bit disgruntled about how it's not really being acknowledged that people who are labeled with mental illnesses go into an overflow, at least in some cases with so-called bipolar disorder and schizophrenia perhaps, though I don't have experience with that exactly. So it's not really being acknowledged, but I have found little tidbits of things. And so that's part of what I'm actually doing is acknowledging, not asking someone else to acknowledge it, but acknowledging for myself that this is a very creative process. It's part of flow. It's part of altered states. It's part of dissolution of the self. It's part of so many things that this energy that moves through us as human beings is attempting to do. It's a different doing than what we're trying to do as humans, protecting ourselves as, as separate egos. It's trying to bring us together in a way. So I'm officially acknowledging that. And I'm reading a book called A Thousand by Ramaji. And it's a really good book, actually. I would definitely recommend this book a thousand, one thousand, the number one thousand by Ramaji, and also 
and also Stealing Fire by Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel, after the first chapter on Navy SEALs, it gets really good. Because even though they're not talking about people labeled with mental illnesses specifically, if one with a label takes the time to read it, with an open context, then one will read a lot about one's brain and how powerful it is. And Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel talk about the four elements of flow or ecstasis that they call it. And people that go into mania definitely feel ecstasy. And they say the four bits of it are selflessness, timelessness, effortlessness, and richness. Those four words are very important. That's exactly what the state feels like. So we definitely go into ecstasis, and that's not as much of a problem, though it can be when people feel so abundant that they spend all their money and things like that. But we can learn not to do that. Um, it's more that it's really powerful and also a prolonged period of time. Even though it's a timeless state, it goes on for a long time. Even though it's an effortless state, there can be a lot of effort that has to be carried out afterwards to sort of integrate it and, and come back from that ecstasis. And even though there's so much richness, it, after the fact, if one is labeled with a mental illness, it can actually lead to a life very, very devoid of richness. And even though it's a selfless state, after the fact, for someone labeled with mental illness, it can lead to a life of picking up the pieces of the self or trying to protect the self or trying to feed the self or so many things. So the trouble with ecstasis when it comes to it leading to others perceiving one is needing help and giving the type of help that they do in terms of psychopharmacology and all that comes with it, it can lead to actually a life of those four elements of ecstasis being ripped to shreds and actually turned upside down and amplified a million times. So that's the trouble. And, and there's so much to that. And that book is really good for that. And there's some parts I want to talk about because they're really important. It's really important for people to know this kind of stuff uh, for themselves who go into these ecstatic states without even really wanting to. Even though when they're in it, they love it and they probably wish for it because we're always wishing for the good. But I don't think it's a great idea to sit back and wish for the good and live in a contracted way. But if we can live in a micro-expanded way, then when that huge expansion comes in, we'll actually be able to move with it more and not necessarily have such a fallout from it because we're already moving in those ways. So the Thousand Book, 1000 by Ramaji, had a really interesting blurb in it that caught my attention. And he said... There's no course out there that he knows of to help deal with the inflation problem, which is the inflation of the self, the inflation of the ego. Because 
a lot of people come into contact with this problem of inflation. And he says there's innocent inflation and then there's pathological inflation. And to me, the self or the ego is a pathology in general, and we all have it. The trouble is if something happens to the self that we all think is normal, then we're labeled with a pathology. So if our self gets too expanded and we feel like we're God compared to usual, then we're trying to get this little self back, which is also a pathology. And the book says, don't believe in your own hype. And I found that interesting because that's something that I've been saying to myself all along is don't believe anything that I say. And I don't believe anything that I say. The element that believes is the self. The self is the believer of beliefs. It is the belief and the believer. The self itself is a belief that believes itself. So I probably have talked to myself about quite a few different tips to avoid this ego inflation. And one of them is not to believe anything that I say. And that also makes room for the next possibility of something to say. And to go with that, don't believe or have a hope in any of the ideas because a hope is attached to the self hoping and then that attaches it to memory and it leads it to be something that we need to remember to hope for. So there's trouble with attaching psychological ideas or any kind of idea to a me. And there were actually some tips at the end of the book, Stealing Fire, on this because they were saying that there's this selfless feeling. And so they said one of the tips of that is it's not about you. And I've said that it's not about the me. Belief creates the me. And then it also says in terms of the timelessness, it's not about now. And I've said this too, that we get a huge download in map consciousness, but there's no way we can do it all now, but since it feels so eternal and timeless in that space, we feel like it all has to happen now or is happening now, but it's more of just a download, a blueprint, a map. It's a download that expands our map of possibilities for the future, but it's not necessarily happening right now, but it's almost creating some of the brain cells to see some of those elements as salient as we continue on our journey. So... In that visionary state, one could just feel like this isn't about now, but pay attention to some of these elements as they're being downloaded as brain salience. And in terms of effortlessness, they said, don't be a bliss junkie. And that was something I was just talking about, that it feels really good, but it's not about the good. It's about the expansion. And part of expansion is learning. So if we're always learning, then we're definitely expanding. And that space, that space of map consciousness I've already talked about a lot is hyper learning. So that's part of why it feels so good. So instead of just chasing the feeling of good, can we learn? Can we expand in daily life? So then that way, this hyper learning space doesn't necessarily have to come in. And then it feels good. But if we're learning in micro amounts in daily life. So that's part of the daily practice is learning. So I noticed the last two days I read some things on creativity that actually got my mind going with insights instead of just maybe reading tweets about 
supposed mental illness that get me kind of annoyed. And the richness domain, they said, don't dive too deep. And for me, now that this insight and harvest practice and body thing has been a daily thing, not just a one month out of the year thing, since it's so embodied, I don't have to feel like I have to get to it right away or have to write down every insight that I have. Like it feels so important because it feels so infinite and eternal and always possible. So I can just turn it off and turn it on and not feel like it's so important. Because when that first happens in math consciousness, we feel like it's so important, it's so valuable. But if we're able to do that in micro amounts every day and learn and harvest practice and body, then it's just part of life. And then it doesn't really inflate the ego as much as feeling like this is so important and I have to do this now. And it doesn't feel like something that has to be now because it's something that's always possible. So it's a little bit of a paradox or it's kind of the opposite in a way of this timelessness tip that they give in the book. Like it's not now. And I think that it's not now gets resolved when one realizes it could be any time. So if one is in flow or a high state of consciousness or ecstasis or ecstasis, one's going to feel like this is so important, this is so valuable, I got to do this now. And one might come out of that and then feel like, okay, well, I can harvest this and practice it and embody it and integrate it. But eventually, it just happens at the same time. So then it's always now. I don't know if that makes any sense. One can, if one is going into flow or extreme states randomly or by some kind of volitional act, one's going to find them really important. But if one is able to take some of that harvest practice and body, do micro expansions in daily life, then one doesn't need to chase any kind of deep dive or wish for it. Some people might do deep dives with some kind of substance, but some of us, we just go into a deep dive of expanded consciousness and an ecstasis without wanting to or without volition. So I feel like doing these micro amounts in daily life, that big rush of it won't necessarily need to happen because it's always happening in real time. Because even with this process that they're talking about now, going into flow and then coming out of it and resting and thinking about it and sort of preparing for the next experience that we might go into volitionally, there's still a self in between those flow spaces. But what if it's not this hyper-meaning state, this hyper-learning state, this hyper-energy state, and then this less-than state where we're kind of sitting and waiting for the next, but always a significantly more energetic state where one is able to expand and and learn all the time. So we're not so much an ego that had this big meaningful experience and then is thinking about it and, and hoping for the next time as an ego self, but just always a process of learning. So can we go from being an ego self 
to just a compass and a map and a learner, just a process of learning. Because the ego is that which would not learn or be sitting there hoping for the next time, meanwhile not learning. So it can go like this, the energy like this, until it's just always micro-expanding. And, and then it's always now. And then it's, there never was a me. And then bliss is just replaced by the joy of being and learning in the moment, every moment. And it's always rich. And there's no need for a deep dive of richness because there's such an infinite kaleidoscope of richness. Because that's the thing too, if somebody goes into flow, they might start thinking, well, this is what flow is. So I need to do this particular thing to get into this particular flow because this is flow. And that's maybe feeling like a major flow event in contrast to the ego. But when there's no ego to contrast it to as much, then what is it? It can't just be this unidirectional thing all the time. one might feel like it's possible to always be flowing. And when one is, there's no space for this ego that would stop to retrospect and plan for the next one. Can we go from being an ego to just a space of flow? And I think I wrote some notes about that later, but... So the ego is the mechanism by which we believe. It's the me that believes. And when there's no time, there's no time to believe. We don't need an entity there to believe something that we say. We can just say it. There's no believer of what we say. But when we do that, we tether what we said to this invisible entity which creates the entity, which is just a bunch of words spinning around. So also by deactivating belief, we can deactivate some of this inflation because the ego is that which believes. So if we're not believing, we're not inflating that mechanism of belief, which is the ego. So don't bring in the believer, just be the receiver and the perceiver. Just because we perceive something doesn't mean that belief has to be there in any way, shape or form. So the 1000 book by Ramaji said, I don't know of any course that helps to deal with the problem of inflation, of the ego, of the self. And he said, there's no course offered on how to deal with these challenges. And I feel like that is a major challenge for us who go into map consciousness is this ego inflation. Because again, it's an expansion that will kind of inflate or expand whatever's there operating. And we can see for ourselves what this does in our life because this energy comes in and expands that ego and look what happens. It's usually a big mess and a disaster. So where else can that energy be channeled? Or I feel, and I think I've talked about this, is the energy actually inflates it partly to make it more visible to us. 
So usually the ego structure is operating invisibly as ourself, as necessary, as what is. But then it becomes visible. Before it was invisible, it's a transparent self-model, as Thomas Metzinger would say. But the energy comes in, and by expanding the ego self, it actually makes it more obvious what it's doing. And then we usually enact a lot of that out. So can we use some of that energy to just perceive what it's doing, and then when we perceive that, a lot of it drops away, possibly. So this could be one of the biggest challenges, the number one challenge of people who go into map consciousness, is this ego inflation. It's not about me. And not even the so-called psychosis is about me. And that's a tough one. That's a really tough one because when we're expanding and we feel like God, it's cool to think, wow, this is all about me. But when it's contracting and there might be something like a psychosis, well, the trouble is there's scary images and we usually do think this is about me and we think we're bad and all of this. But... Really, the self-structure is not coherent. When it's expanding like that, it's not coherent, and we see that. And then when it's contracting and, and scary stuff's being projected, it's not coherent still. So it's not about, oh, this side is good and this side's bad. Both sides aren't coherent. And one side we like and one side we don't like. But it's not about like and dislike. It's about showing this whole structure and what it's doing. And then look what it does to our life as a result. Very quickly, when we have this expanded version of it, and then the goal of recovery is to get the little, the little contracted version of it working again good. But that is very limited. When we see how it really works, we might move beyond it instead of trying to get the little version of it going again indefinitely. And also this is what the ego does is it projects. So it's going to project all these wonderful feelings and beliefs in so-called mania and then terrible ones in psychosis. And it's not about this is good and this is bad. It's about it's all a projection. So again, it's when we just look at the good and the bad, we miss the fundamental roots of what it's all showing about the projection element about the believing element about the me all parts that aren't actually really there they're actually projecting and reinforcing an illusion of a separate self and the trouble is there's a trick there that makes us believe that it's about the me but really the trick is that it's all a bunch of make-believe there's a process here that makes it believe it's about the me but this is the ultimate make-believe because really we might see that the ego is a game of make-believe and the ultimate make-believe is that there is a self to make-believe it's a loop can we go from believe to perceive and then not believing perceptions, but acting on perceptions. Or having the perception act on the brain so that we can see more. And that's the expansion. Perception acting on the brain so then we can see more. Can we perceive, receive, and then recite? And just speak 
not as a me, not as belief, but just speaking as we perceive. And what's really the difference between thinking and believing? To me, they're both part of memory. So what I'm trying to say is that our thinking is from memory and our belief is from memory. So really, we're just speaking as a bunch of memories. We're not actually speaking as we perceive in the moment now. We're speaking as the past. And so that means that we're not seeing anything now. And in the book Stealing Fire, Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel give a little equation, which is value of a state or something is equal to time times reward over risk. And so they use times, the time it takes to acquire the skill, and then reward over the risk. And I feel like risk in terms of somebody who goes into map consciousness involuntarily can be reduced by harvest practice and body. If we're practicing that risky state, when we're not in that risk at all, it's actually going to decrease the risk. In the same way, people practice flying airplanes in a simulator. So when they go up into the actual plane, their risk is greatly reduced because they practiced. So the equation, in a way, would be practice decreases risk. So that would change it to times practice which is part of time. So none of these are really separate. And then imagine if you can actually decrease the reward, but so in a state of mania, somebody feels like it's a big reward. So say that's like a hundred percent reward or something like that, but we're only in it for say, 30 days before it craps out on us and then there's a big fallout and that makes the risk greater and actually decreases the reward. But if we can actually decrease the reward by practicing, which is decrease all the pleasure-y stuff, but there would be a different reward happening of learning so reward is usually tied to pleasure, but can we tie it more to expansion and learning? And as we expand and learn, the amount of pleasure is actually reduced, but we're all pleasure adapted. So yeah, I'm trying to say that reward is kind of learning and expansion and not pleasure. And then instead of having 30 days in the state, we might have 360 days in the state. So we can actually increase our time in the states and the reward changes in quality from, from just 
pleasure to a richness and the risk actually goes down with practice when we're not in that space as much. And then actually as we're practicing not being in the space, we're actually finding that now we're more kind of in the space than not. So I think there's a different equation arising that I might have to write down in order to figure out. Today is another milestone day. 10 weeks off psych meds. And I'm feeling good, really good. And today, in the spirit of a little less conversation, a little more action, I'm gonna go to the festival that I was supposed to be performing in and just be a spectator and see what's going on in the world of art for people on the outside. So we'll see what happens. Happy 10 week anniversary. So today was kind of a mixed day. I decided to do the whole, a little less conversation, a little more action and go to that festival and it was kind of a gong show because the traffic was just incredible. And I'm not used to being back yet. And I'm gonna start using the Waze app because it will tell me about traffic ahead of time even better than Google Maps. And it will even tell me where to park if I'm going to a certain building. And so that way I know where the parking is nearby. I haven't really used it before, but I think it's necessary now because I'm living further out into the countryside. And this has happened to me twice. The two times I went into town, there was just horrific traffic from accidents and just being backed up. So it's not really worth it going into town unless there's no traffic or there's no accidents or something like that. So I have to plan better because that really set the tone for the day. I felt really frustrated. Plus I was running out of gas and I had to turn off the highway to get gas because of how long it was taking. It took me like an hour to go like 10 kilometers. It was really, really, really brutal. And that's not good for my highly sensitive personhood. And so I finally got to the event and the art was really beautiful. And then I had a peek at the stage that I would have been performing on. and. It wouldn't have been that intimidating. I probably could have done it, but I didn't really want to do that bipolar comedy routine. So just going there and seeing that made me feel a bit like, ugh, because I didn't do well on that. And also I got the external battery pack for my phone. It's a little heavy. I think it says it's 12 ounces or something but it is awesome. I've already charged my phone twice because the battery is just going really quickly. And then I was rollerblading and it was so busy. It was so incredibly busy. I just felt so annoyed and from the traffic I felt annoyed. I just felt like I got myself into a situation where it's just too busy and I'm learning that that's not good. That's the first time I've done that since I've been back. Put myself in that kind of scenario. Saturday busyness, tourists, blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't good. But I made the most of it. I made the most of my $16 worth of parking. And 
did 40 kilometers on my skates. And so today is just a little bit of a bummer day in daily reality, in existence. And I just want to acknowledge that to myself. And I just use ways to check how traffic's going to be on the way back and it's going to be pretty crappy. Oh, the cutest little chipmunk just went strolling by. It was more like a mad scamper, not a stroll, but it was really cute. And I'm going to stop at the health food store and get my favorite kind of toothpaste because it's kind of hard to find and I need new mascara as well and I get a healthy kind that isn't toxic and bad for animals and stuff like that. Thank you for listening to Bipolar Inquiry. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Remember, use your voice, craft your consciousness, embody your potential, enter a quantum paradigm. The Bipolar Inquiry podcast is not meant to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information in this show is not medical advice. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.